I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange, which is now a podcast. Subscribe today. It's your one-stop shop for the day's top business stories. Plus, listen in for lots of original reporting, in-depth conversation, and some of the best of CNBC's award-winning investigative work. Subscribe to The Exchange for free, and you can always catch The Exchange live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. You know what? We're so used to the government keeping a lid on the market that sometimes we have trouble comprehending when Washington does something incredibly positive for stocks or when Washington does something great for the economy, for that matter. Yeah, that's exactly what's playing out here right now. Dow gaining 323 points today, leaving the 26,000 benchmark in the dust. S&P vaulting 0.94%, NASDAQ surging over 1%. Yet I am telling you, I find many people still refuse to acknowledge what's happened out of Washington. The combination of lower taxes coupled with deregulation and a tougher line on trade is fantastic for the market. Throw in a booming global economy, and it is a beautiful thing to behold. Now, the cynic in all of us has been conditioned to believe that big business is all about rewarding shareholders and shareholders only. So the moment we give companies money by cutting their federal taxes, they're just going to hand over checks, mostly to people who are already incredibly wealthy. For example, we've heard over and over again that if we let companies repatriate their overseas cash at a lower tax rate, then they'll use that money to buy back stock and boost dividends rather than investing in new jobs or new machinery. Things that would actually help this whole country prosper. And to be fair, that is exactly what these executives did the last time we got a repatriation tax holiday under George W. Bush. You hear the same thing about lower corporate tax rates. You cut their taxes and the rich get richer. Welfare for billionaires. Now, obviously, there's some truth to that, but we're dedicated on Incray America to telling you the whole truth. I could spend the whole rest of the show talking about all the bonuses and raises that have been doled out since the tax bill passed, direct proof that at least some of this money is indeed going to the people who actually need it. Or, or, I can talk about Apple. So let's do that. Today, Apple, using some of the gigantic $252 billion cash hoard that it has overseas, announced what I think is a modern-day Marshall Plan for the U.S. economy. What did they do? Apple committed to directly investing $350 billion into the United States over the next five years, including $38 billion in repatriation taxes. Now, check that. This thing is actually bigger than the fabled Marshall Plan where our country committed $140 billion to rebuilding Western Europe after World War II. And that $140 billion figure, that is already adjusted for inflation. Yet Babel's Tim Cook is thinking bigger than General Marshall, and it's about our country. And of the $350 billion, $55 billion of that will be directly injected in 2018. 
Frankly, I think Apple's view of how to generate jobs, how to create wealth away from the shareholder base is probably a heck of a lot better than anything the government could ever do. First, there's the 20,000 jobs that Apple announced today through direct hiring at existing campuses, along with the new campus it's going to build at a new location. Second, when I sat down with Tim Cook last May in Cupertino, he announced on this show that his company was creating an advanced manufacturing fund endowed with $1 billion to support innovation among American manufacturers, money that's already being put to work in places as wide range as factories in Kentucky and Texas. It was a big deal number. But you know what? Today, Apple increased the amount to $5 billion. The company also rolled out plans to accelerate its efforts to teach people how to code in an attempt to fix what they call the coding gap that's left a half a million jobs unfilled across the country. Thank heaven somebody's doing something about it. Tim Cook has explained on our show that when you consider the direct employment by Apple, 84,000 people in all 50 states, the 9,000 Apple suppliers, both big and small, medium, whatever, that are created by the app economy, how many people from the app economy? Apple is already supporting more than 2 million jobs. Hard to get your arms around. Hard to get your head around. With this American Marshall plan announced today, I don't think it would be a stretch to say that Apple can generate a multiplier effect that might create millions of more jobs. The company also announced that 98% of its employees, all but the top execs and directors, are going to be receiving $2,500 in stock vested over three years so they can participate in the wealth Apple creates for shareholders. I like that far more than these one-time cash bonuses because employees, by and large, want a chance to participate in their firm's success. Many of them don't have the money to do so. Now, I am sure the cynics out there, which includes pretty much everybody these days, will say that in the end, the biggest winners will still be the shareholders themselves, not the stakeholders or the customers, the two million app jobs, whatever. The shareholders will benefit from an expanded buyback and a bigger dividend. There's not, no denying that. But I say, hey, what's stopping you from owning a couple of shares of this $920 billion company with $179 stock? Oh, unless you say, well, who can afford that? I can only tell you that I've been recommending this stock since it was at 5 bucks. So don't you look at me. Cook talked today about how Apple is a success story that could only have happened in America, and we are proud to build our long history of support for the U.S. economy. Now, I had the chance to speak to Tim personally this afternoon, and he stressed to me that the need for Apple to be the best corporate citizen imaginable is paramount. He pointed out that the new jobs will be the kind that can last. They won't be outmoded by technology because they're technology jobs including the $10 billion he's committed to expanding capital expenditures for data centers, like the one he broke ground in Reno, Nevada, when he was talking to me. He emphasized that he's done his best to ensure that everyone Apple touches does better with this newfound money. And that's what made me think of the Marshall Plan. Cook told me something else today that crystallizes what is happening in the stock market and in the economy. He said that while some of these efforts were indeed in the works, Washington enabled most of this job-creating plan to occur by changing the tax code to allow companies to return capital to all stakeholders, a series of reforms that Tim has championed for quite a long time. Now, initially, the market couldn't figure out what the heck Apple was really doing today. It's pretty strange. It's like Wally Coyote over the cliff. Wall Street doesn't necessarily embrace the idea of being a good corporate citizen. 
In fact, this stock actually spent most of the day down on the usual call by some analysts that you had to trade not own Apple. That's been real good, right? Because of lackluster iPhone sales. Where have I heard that? Like 10 times? Oh, no, there's no iPhone 9. That's just an X. Anyway, it was something that was directly opposed by, to what Morgan Stanley's Katie Huberty told her, Salesforce today. Oh, by the way, Huberty's been right as rain about how the company's really doing. I fall back and say, you should own Apple. Don't trade it. It was only after people put pen to paper and realized how much money would be left for shareholders after Apple's modern-day Marshall Plan was announced that the stock really took off, soaring almost three bucks, helping lead a second leg of what had already been a supercharged session. The first part of the liftoff was led by industrials. Thank you, Boeing, up another 15 points. The semiconductors, goosed by stellar numbers from ASML Holdings, the capital equipment company that makes the machines to make semis. United Health, a second-day move off of earnings, and IBM. Courtesy of an upgrade, well, I could just call it a double upgrade, sell to buy, on the eve of the company's report at Barclays. All of this is made more remarkable by the fact that it came after a brutal reversal day where many stocks opened at their highs and then tumbled down, giving up all of their gains and then some before a feeble rally lifted shares late in the day. These kinds of affairs have in the past tended to lead to multiple down days, but not in this market. This market's back in beast mode. Let's go back to my initial point, though. Love him or hate him, Donald Trump has created an atmosphere that encourages companies like Apple to invest in our country. If the collateral damage from this tax cut is that shareholders, including the rich ones, also make a lot more money, I am not going to cry about that. Sure, I'm using Apple as a metaphor for what Apple has given us. And before Washington has given us, I'm sorry. Yes, Apple's just one company, and we don't know how many others will follow suit. But it's a heck of a lot more than anyone expected. The bottom line, whatever you think of the president, part of his agenda is working. If Apple turns out to be the tip of the iceberg, then this already strong economy could get even stronger. And frankly, I don't know about you. I'd rather have Tim Cook deciding what to do with this cash than anyone in the Capitol. John in Indiana. John. Hey, Jim. Love your show. Thank you. Here's my question. Is AT&T a good buy? Here are my thoughts. Net neutrality is now gone. Corporate taxes have been cut. And dividend pad is over 5%. What do you think? I totally agree with you. I think it's a terrific time to be ATT. And I think that your idea is a lot, uh, makes a lot of sense at a 5.4% uh, yield. So, yes, I agree with you. How about Brett in Florida, please? Brett. How you doing, Jim? Booyah. Booyah. Go Eagles. You Long bet. time follower. My stock is Juniper. We haven't heard from you for a while on that one. I think Today Juniper's fine. I don't think there's going to be a lot of uh, – th- see, the problem with Juniper is, is that the service providers aren't spending as much as they used to. That's why I preferred the hybrid of Cisco, where you get service providers but also all the great software companies that Chuck Robbins has put in that makes it so it's much more highly valued. How about Jude in Washington? Jude. Hey, booyah, Mr. Kramer. Booyah. Greetings from rainy Seattle, West Coast, Washington. Wow, what can you do? All righty. <laughs> okay, so first of all, a huge thank you for doing this awesome show for so many years. And you're very funny thank and you. smart. It's an amazing combination. <laughs> thank you very much. I've been at it for a little bit now. What's okay, up? Yes, you have. Okay, so my stock is Entercom Communications, symbol ETM, which you introduced me to last year before right. the complicated deal with CBS took yes. place. Yes. And it's been seesawing the last roughly four months between a price of 1050 and 1250 
and I'd like to know what you think of it currently. I think it's good. It's got a good yield. I mean, look, obviously, uh, radio is a very problematic medium, but they have enough scale, I think, to be able to do okay, and that's why I felt it was worth owning. Sure, Trump has created an atmosphere for companies to rebuild our country, but Apple took it to the next level. Tim Cook, thank you for using your ingenuity to do a lot more for this country than the government could. Well, man, buddy, tonight, how did big banks score on their quarterly report cards? I'm offering up a recap of where we stand with the major players. Then I'm revealing the new wild card in this market and explaining how it's playing out in spectacular fashion. And Sharif Suki is considered an energy oracle. What does he have to say about the sector these days? I've got the exclusive, so stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I'll say it again. The financials are the most important leadership group in this entire market. So now that we've heard from nearly all the major banks this earnings season, everybody except Morgan Stanley, how exactly is this crucial sector doing? Let's start with the big money center banks, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, and Bank of America. Last week, when I told you what to watch for from the banks, I said that I was concerned about the earnings numbers, specifically because I expected these companies to recognize some major losses in order to get out in front of tax reform. I know it was pure accounting gimmickry, but I worried that it might freak out investors. Turns out there was no need to worry. J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup also had delivered substantial earnings beats, even as only J.P. Morgan and Citi actually gave you that higher-than-expected revenue that I like to see. I also stressed that the headline numbers were less important than what they had to say about their net interest margins, their loan growth, and their capital return plans. That interest margin is the single most important metric for traditional banks. It's the difference between uh, the interest they pay for you, and, uh, for your deposits, and the interest they collect on their loans or what they invest in. Lately, there's been some concern here because of the flattening yield curve, but the numbers are based on that difference between the deposit rates and the banks. So, it, it, look, they're pretty good. J.P. Morgan saw their net interest margin increase by five basis points from the previous quarter to 2.42%. It's better than analysts expected. Bank of America saw a three basis point increase from the previous quarter, up to 2.39. Citigroup, on the other hand, saw a nine basis point decline, down to 2.63%. Wells Fargo experienced a two basis point decline to 2.84%, although it's still a lot higher than the other big banks, and that's fabulous news in a Fed tightening cycle, which is probably why the stock's going up. What about loan growth? While the net interest margin may be the single most important line for most of the banks themselves, loan growth is the most important indicator of the broader economy. Commerce runs on lending. You get more of it, it leads to a dramatic expansion in economic activity. How do they do? J.P. Morgan saw 1.7% increase in consumer average loan balances versus a year ago. But more importantly, their commercial average loan balances increased by 7%. Even better, their commercial and industrial loans, so crucial, was up 6%. Commercial real estate loans were up 9%. Hey, those are all healthy numbers. Wells Fargo, on the other hand, saw its average commercial and industrial loans increase by less than 1% versus last year. Total average commercial loans actually decreased marginally. Citigroup, total loans up 5% versus the same time last year. Very good. Bank of America was okay with their total average loans and leases up 4% versus last year. Not great, not too shabby. 
How about their capital return plans? What do you get from the shareholder? This is the one thing that investors really cared about because with the tax cut and a much easier approach to regulation from President Trump's new Fed chief, Jerome Powell, we can expect some major dividends and more importantly, larger buybacks, okay? Now, J.P. Morgan and Citi and Bank of America all said that their approach to dividends and buybacks won't change because of the tax bill. But all four of these companies have been voracious buyers for their own stock, especially Bank of America and Wells Fargo. And if the Fed gives them permission to even increase their repurchase programs, I think they'll do just that. So they have so much capital. So how would I rank them? Okay, I think J.P. Morgan's quarter was quite positive, especially when they told us that they only expect to pay a 19% tax rate this year, another big win for them, which forced the analysts to immediately raise their earnings estimates. J.P. Morgan saw solid loan growth, nice deposit growth, and their net interest margins expanding. What is not to like? Well, trading and fixed income, maybe. Uh, but that shouldn't come as a shock to anybody. How about Bank of America? Even though the stock got hit today after the company reported, I actually thought this was one of the best quarters from anyone in the group. Remember, Bank of America is exactly the kind of financial you want to own in this environment. They have the most rate sensitivity to rising interest rates because they have such a gigantic deposit base. You know, I actually expect them to earn about $3 billion more in the wake of four Fed rate hikes, when that's well within reason. Citigroup! This one was always going to be considered noisy because of the big accounting charge they took after the passage of the tax cut. But I think it was a decent quarter. I'd like some more clarity on whether Nenish's margins keep drifting lower, but Citi's loan growth is encouraging. Wells Fargo, yeah, disappointed, understandably, I guess, given the regulatory cloud over their heads. The company's still in the process of cleaning up its reputation after its big cross-selling scandal. That may be hurting their ability to pull in new customers, hence the declining net interest margin numbers and the shrinking loan balances. The company also saw a big pickup in costs thanks to the litigation expenses. And while I think the whole group is poised to go higher here, Wells, I'm going to call it my least favorite. How about their stocks? Okay, when you're trying to value a bank stock, the key metric is the tangible book value, what the business would be worth if you shut the whole thing down and liquidated the entire company at that moment. On a price-to-book value, J.P. Morgan and Wells are the most expensive, trading at 2.1 and 2 times book value, respectively. Bank of America, cheaper, 1.85 times its tangible book. City's the cheapest, just 1.28 times book. My view, J.P. Morgan remains best of breed, but as usual, you need to pay up for best of breed. My charitable trust would tell you. You can follow along at ActionLearnsPlus.com. We recently bought it. If you want the best play on rising interest rates, go for Bank of America. And if you're looking for the value in the group, it's City. As for Wells, I think it's going to play catch-up to the others because it looks to be out of the woods with the regulators, although I still prefer the others, particularly J.P. Morgan, for its breadth of its business and its products. But remember, they're all cheap. So it's a bit like splitting hairs. And that's where we stand with the money center banks. Now, let's talk about something that happened today that brought down the group. Let's talk about Goldman Sachs. The big investment bank reported what initially seemed like a strong quarter, but then it sold off and sold off hard during the conference call, which was quite grim. The reason? Goldman's headline numbers were excellent, including a colossal earnings beat, but the disparity between their investment banking and trading businesses was enormous. Goldman's investment bank division is on fire, up 44% year over year. Nice earnings surprise for that line, even with very few IPOs, making a fortune. However, Goldman's trading business for uh, what they call the institutional client services was down 34% year over year. Ouch. Fixed income, currency, commodities, client execution debt climbed by 50%. Revenue from equity trading dropped by 14%, which only looks good in comparison to those other horrific figures. Still, the strength in investment banking, lending, and investment management offset the weakness in trading. Everything sounded pretty good until the conference call. Marty Chavez, I like this guy. He's the CFO. He's talked about Goldman's adjusting to a low-volatility, low-activity world, implying that the weakness in trading might not be temporary. Even worse, it doesn't sound like they're getting much benefit from the tax cut. Goldman's effective tax rate was 28% last year. They expect it to be 24% this year. 
Even worse, they said the accounting losses they took in anticipation of lower rates have reduced their capital ratio, which will limit their ability to pass on the tax savings through dividends and buybacks. And that's not what we wanted to hear. Still, with the stock trading at less than 1.5 times its tangible book, this is Goldman Sachs I'm talking about, and just 10.7 times next year's earnings estimates. Voracious buyback. They retired 16% of the share count in the last four years. I think it's safe to say that Goldman's become a value stock. I think today's weakness is buying opportunity. Well, I wait until the trading window closes in a couple days. Goldman people get paid in a lot of cash, but also a lot of stock. They got to do some selling here. Bottom line, after hearing from most of the major banks, I remain confident about the financials as a place to be. You know my preferences. J.P. Morgan for best of breed. City for value. Bank of America is the biggest beneficiary of rising interest rates. But you won't go wrong with any of these. Because this group, this cohort, is actually the cheapest growth stock group in the entire stock market. Notice I said growth stock group? That's new, huh? Bill in New York. Bill. Hi, Jim. How are you? I am good, Bill. How about you? I am well. I'd appreciate your thoughts on CME Group as a long-term position. It's a winner. They've done so many things right. It's incredibly well-managed. I'm calling it a... Bye, bye, bye! Let's go to Larry in Florida. Larry. Yes. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Larry. From Sigur Island, Florida. You have a great show and a wonderful staff. And Thank by the way, you. congratulations with the great Eagle win. Oh, Jim, yeah. my question is, I own PayPal. It's been a good stock for me. I'm almost up 100%. Do you think there's any more room to run, number yes, one? Yes, I do. I think the stock can go to 100. Now, that said, I never mind anyone taking a profit. If you're up... Uh, you know, I'm saying you've got some stock that's like your basis. Let's take some of that out. But I think that Dan Shulman is running a company that is running rings around everyone. And they're not even monetizing Venmo yet. Mike in Missouri. Mike. Hey, Kramer. How's it going? I am doing well. How about you? Good, man. Thanks for taking my call. So How can I, I help? My question is about the stock uh, Walker and Dunlop. I've uh, had it for a few months, and it's been kind of stagnant, and I want to know if you think I should uh, sell or stay in it for a while. You know, commercial real estate investment services is always going to be CBRE, okay? That's the one that we like. That has been an incredible stock. The symbol is CBG. What a horse. That's the one to go with. Financials are the most important leadership group in this market, and I feel confident about them from what I've heard so far. Much more made money ahead. We spend plenty of time talking about how the tax rate will impact companies. But what about the consumers themselves? I'm breaking it down. Then what's the ultimate tell for the natural gas industry? I'm going to talk with Tellurian founder Sharif Suki about what's ahead for the energy sector. And it's a company that works with the likes of Home Depot, BlackRock, and Coca-Cola. And it has been on a tear over the past year. So is it time to reconsider Splunk or is it time to buy? I'm sitting down with the CEO. So stick with Kramer. The consumer just doesn't know when to quit. She's spending twice as much as she did at this time last year. That's at least according to some data I got from Bank of America. And it's rippling through the economy in ways that would have been unimaginable in a couple of years ago. Just unimaginable. Yet I think the strength of the consumer remains unappreciated in the stock market, or at least underappreciated. We spend a lot of time talking about how the corporate tax cuts will bolster profits, bottom line, for tons of retailers. But while the new tax regime will be very favorable for the retailers and restaurants, it's a one-time change. A year from now, we'll anniversary the new numbers, and that will be that. What matters even more, though, right now, is how business is actually doing as measured by the top line, the revenue line. 
And when it comes to revenue, the consumer spending factor, it's the new wild card. And it's playing out in spectacular fashion. You throw in the fact that we have weak dollar and it's clear everything is coming up roses for the sector, far rosier than the stocks. What's the consumer spending on? All right, consider the case of Tiffany, a stock we don't talk much about. This is a company that struggled of late with negative same-store sales, in part because of the high price point of their goods, but also because their New York store, so important, had been hurt by the strong dollar. No more. The consumer spending again, and the overseas customers back. Tiffany's same-store sales for the holiday season, which had been in a sickening slide, reversed, going from minus 1% in 2016 to plus 3% this year. The stock rallied almost a buck and a half. I think it can go much higher because there's a lot more money in people's pockets. I know the price point's expensive. It's a bargain for the wealthy. Where else? I think that a lot of the money's going toward home improvement. You see that in the ever-rising prices for the stocks of Home Depot, up $3.50 today, or an all, it's an all-time high. And Lowe's, which advanced 71 cents. I know that's a paltry amount in this tape, but on top of a very big move last week. Both stocks are now richly valued. But they're by and large domestic companies that can have a real windfall if the consumer's opening your wallet. And I don't think either has peaked, although I think a pullback, even an intraday one like we had yesterday, is now worth waiting for. My charitable trust owns a stock that has become quite controversial, and it's the stock of Activision Blizzard, which is in the red-hot video game space. There's a lot of bears shooting against us. I think it's still worth buying, even right here at around 70 bucks. Uh, it, not only for its strong sales of games, but because of the incredible success that we're seeing already in esports the success of its games like Overwatch. Activision was a huge winner last year. Maybe that's why the bears are circling. I don't know. It's terrific stock. I'd also think about buying Darden up here. That's the parent of Olive Garden, which still doesn't reflect the incredible turnaround here and the possibilities that other concepts grow even bigger than Olive Garden. You know, they're way too often overlooked in a fabulous average unifies. Don't forget, even after its amazing run, Darden sports a 2.6% yield. Ah, come on, that's a nice cushion. With this rough winter, I think the auto parts stores will keep winning. Now, after the uh, amazing run of AutoZone, my favorites become the stock of Advanced Auto Parts, which I think can roar even higher, even though it's already up 15% for the year. Please don't forget the department stores. Kohl's, we interviewed them last week in Orlando. What a huge move. Continued today. But Macy's, that stock hasn't kept up nearly as well as Kohl's. With its big presence in New York City, like Tiffany, it's got a lot of exposure to the weak dollar. And that's without even factoring in what the company can do with its real estate. I'd love to see the Macy's and Herald Square become a mini mall of high-end stores and restaurants anchored by the fabled department store, kind of like a cadave, which is the so-called temple to consumerism. If you've never been there in Berlin, it'll just knock your socks off. The consumer could be so strong that the Nordstrom family might want to rethink that going private again. It tried earlier. It failed. This is a better environment. Finally, the consumer loves bargains, like the ones you find at Walmart. What a stock. Not done. Dollar Tree, Dollar General. Even if these phenomenal moves, there's more. Not If there's a dramatic decline in the tax rate coupled with a major pickup in consumer spending, we're going to look back at these prices and say, darn, why didn't I get in? Bottom line, there's no need to charge into these stocks right now. You can take your time. Maybe wait for another reversal day like we had yesterday. Buy them in a week. But I got to tell you, I like them all. Much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with the man who developed the export market for natural gas in this country. Where does he think the commodities headed? Where's his company headed? Don't miss my exclusive with Sharif Suki. Then, as the cloud and data center plays become increasingly competitive, I'm eyeing one company that could bank off this trend and is helping a lot of retailers compete with Amazon. Don't miss my exclusive with Splunk. And all your calls, rapid fire. Tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer.
tomorrow. Kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Oh, the the reports not... are getting longer overall. Yeah. Let, me, what? Let me delve into page 47. <laughs> well, you know, but look, it's, it's, it's the long, you know, IBM tax changes. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, on page 72, I'm, I'm really looking at why. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. understand the energy industry, you need to listen to the guys who've gotten it right. Guys like Sharif Suki, he's the co-founder and chairman of Tellurian. He's also the man who built Chenier Energy into a liquefied natural gas titan that I hope you invested in because he made you a ton of money. Start it all over again. I like what I see. For those of you who don't remember, Tellurian, they're developing liquefied natural gas export terminals like Chenier. And they've also started making investments in pipelines and even natural gas production. Bought a lot of acres in Haynesville. I like that area. Now, I mention this because this man's track record uh, well, let's just say it's uh, second to none. He was one of the few executives who called the oil collapse. And then last time we spoke to him in October, when everyone was so negative about oil, he suggested the oil prices should be going higher. That's exactly what happened. you got to take him seriously. Let's check in with Sharif Suki. He's the co-founder and chairman of Tellurian. Get a better sense of where both his company and the border is to your head. And Mr. Suki, welcome back to Mad Money. Some of us are tired of seeing how right you are, sir. Last time it, oil was in the 40s. You said it could go to t- that 50 to 60, maybe even north of that because of worldwide risk, which no one was thinking was going to happen. You got it right. Uh, still stick with that forecast? I, I have another problem today. It's uh, cost of infrastructure. The, the resource is there. Okay. But in order to get it to the water and to be able to export it in the United States, I'm not sure it's there. And on a global basis, we had what you would always expect. We had very low prices for three years. Right. And therefore, all the producers are now not very financially stable. Right. So they cannot invest. And the U.S. is the savior. However, we don't have the infrastructure to take it to the water. We've right. been geared to take it from the water to the rest of the country. And now we have to be able to get it from... Uh, where it's produced to the water, and that the infrastructure doesn't exist. Okay, well, this is a great way to start talking about building a low-cost global gas business, which is what you're doing. I deal with a lot of companies in the, say, in the Permian. A lot of natural gas is just being flared. They're just leaving it for nothing. It's the lowest cost in the world. You have a slide here which says, other than one country, you're going to be the cheapest. Talk to me about building a low-cost global gas business after you already built one, and whether we need more than one, or you know, we also have Dominion. I mean, we're getting a couple of these now. So the fundamental issue is that uh, wellhead costs today for natural gas, whether it's in the Permian Basin or the Scoop Stack or the Mar- Marcellus or the Utica, is always a dollar fifty or less. Right. And yet Henry has the three dollars. Okay, so there's a disconnect. Again, the infrastructure. Right. We cannot get it to the market. It's landlocked, but you're going to change that. I think if you want to be in a commodity business, you have to be the low-cost producer, and therefore you have to do all parts of the chain well. Right. Now, this is a chart, Driftwood versus competitors, and it's a gutter that is the lowest, and then you next, which is rather amazing. Now, the, the thing that I've always been fascinated by is there are people who want to get on the, the uh, Sharif Suki train. And then I read in December that Saudi Arabia wants to invest in the United States. They want to be with, involved with low-cost production, and they have found Tellurian. How is that going? Well, um, since we started the effort two years ago, it's almost two years now. Yeah. It's amazing how time flies. We've done things very methodically. First, make sure you can build it cheap. 
Right. Second goes Cheaper to, than you did the first one, first time. Pretty much in line, but this is five, six years later. Okay. So we haven't uh, suffered from inflation. So we'll right. be right around where we were with Sabine Pass. All right. And then go source it properly. And the gas is much cheaper today than it was five years ago. Right. So you have to go find it and build the infrastructure to get to it. On that basis, once we've done all this, we are actually looking at the low-cost producer of LNG on a global basis. So people are automatically attracted to us. We've been in contact with 100 or more companies for the last six to nine months. And we now have to herd them all together. And countries. And Man. countries. Like, so well, that just, well, you're, you're yes. a man of the world. You, I mean, there are, you, you're, there, you were always had utility companies from all over the globe that were always interested in what you're doing. Do they still need our natural gas? They need natural gas, definitely. We have the cheapest gas in the world, so they need our gas, yes. Now, you're also partnered with General Electric. Uh, you know, a lot of people are worried about General Electric, but that's nothing. Your division is that you're working with is doing a good job, right? Yes, and they're also going to be one of our large suppliers. So we will be worth a billion dollars or more for General Electric. And then they will have a maintenance program with us, as we did with Chenier for many years, right. which will be a couple of hundred million dollars a year. So it's a very, very strong partnership. Okay. Them. Now, I saw you buy some uh, net acreage in Haynesville, which was an area that had been left for dead that you obviously know has incredibly low cost. Is that the beginning of, of uh, many acquisitions, or are you just going to be able to provide? I know you're doing pipe to, uh, to get it, say, from the Apaches of the world who don't know how to get their natural gas out. What is the plan, or is it all of all pieces? We want to have the flexibility to choose the cheapest all the time. Okay. Whether we have to drill for it or simply source it from the Apache likes. How much do we really have in this country, Shreem? It never stops. It never stops. And it's, it's amazing. And now we're getting better at producing the natural gas itself. Right. And we are also finding a lot of natural gas, which is associated with uh, oil. So the price of uh, gas almost doesn't matter. Right. It's a byproduct. It's a total byproduct. I mean, look at what well just put. happened in the, in, in the back end. Uh, they're curtailing right. oil production because they can't do anything with their gas. Right. Well, you can't flare it. You can see it from the uh, Well, you told me you can see it from the moon. Whatever. Now, um, I, I have to ask you about deregulation. Uh, is it easier now? to get the permitting, get what you need because of the uh, Trump revolution? Or is it really just the same and that's just a lot of chatter? It's the same. It's the same. Yes. <laughs> it is just the, 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 the Trump administration is prouder of us than the Obama administration was. So one brags about us and the other one used to hide. Take it where you can get it. <laughs> but, uh, natural gas but prices. they were both very supportive. Where are natural gas and, and uh, oil prices going? Because you've become, unfortunately, gospel. So I'm putting you on the, putting the feet to your uh, oh. fire. Okay, we have so much natural gas in this country, and a lot of it is accidental. And I will tell you this, just the amount of gas that is already behind pipe or that is going to be found because of oil production at $60 a barrel right. uh, is going to require over $150 billion of infrastructure investment over the next five years. And oil, can you said and the risk premium, take it to 60 risk premium, take it to 70 I, I still don't like the risk. You don't? Okay. No. Uh, I mean, and you live with things, risk. things can go wrong very, very quickly in the area that produces most of the then it goes oil. And then it goes higher. And I also think that they have their own issue of infrastructure that they need to invest yes. in in order to be able to deliver the gas. Excellent. Let's leave it at that. That's Sharif Suki, chairman and co-founder of Tellurian, T-E-L-L. May I remind people that we got behind LNG, as previous company, at $8. And look where that went. May have money's back into the break.
It is time. It's time for the lightning And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Let's start with Vince in Minnesota. Vince. Vince. Okay. Uh, Vince is up. Well, let's go to to Nate, please. Nate, you're up. Hi, Jim. Big Minnesota Viking fan. Booyah to you from Seahawk country. Teach us all, my friend. What's up? <laughs> I'm looking at a high-yielding REIT. What are your thoughts on Chimera? You know what, Chimera? You can never even tell what they own. And I'm not going to recommend a stock of a company who I do not know what they own. Let's go to uh, back to Vince in Minnesota. Vince. You know, the Vikings are not showing today is pretty much what I'm saying. If we're going to continue to go to Minnesota, I suggest that we go there for the Super Bowl and not for the NFC Championship. Let's go to Marianne in Florida. Marianne. Let's go to Jim in Englewood Cliffs. Jim. Oh, that's me. (laughs) Marianne in Florida. Marianne. Hey, Jim. It's Marianne in Florida. Thanks for taking my call. All right. What's up? Booyah to you. Hey, got a question about Intel. Bush has been in the news with the whole security problems, and now they have a class action lawsuit going on. And I'm wondering, should I just hold on and see what I'm happens? I'm going to tell you or? this. I'm going to tell you this straight, Marianne. That stuff is nonsense, okay? There was some degradation. It will not even matter. You will not look back. You will not be able to see why that stock went down. I trust Brian Krasanich. He's a good man. If he tells me the problem solved, the problem is solved. Let's go to Brian in Texas. Brian. Hi, Jim. It's Brian in Freezing Plano, Texas. Uh, nice. Could you make me some mad money in Alex, uh, Alexon EXC? Excellent. Uh, the utility. Uh, no, I prefer to make it in Dominion. Uh, American Electric Power, which has come down a great deal, or Con Ed, which has also got hammered. Let's go to Craig in New York. Craig. Craig? Fox A. Craig, you're up. It's Jim. 21st Century Fox. I think it's fine. I think the stub's going to be worth a lot. I do absolutely prefer Disney. Why not go buy Disney? That's a better. And that, ah. ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. Is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. After an incredible day for the average, what do we make of a red hot software company like Splunk? Here's an analytics play. You know, I've liked this one. It's all about making machine data more useful, secure, and accessible to their clients. With a stock that's worth up 62% last year. And it's continued to run in 2018, voting from 83 to 90 bucks just since the beginning of the year. So can Spunk keep up this incredible momentum? We know the company's growing rapidly. Its sales increased by 34% in the most recent quarter. That's big. But the space has also gotten a little more crowded. And so you got to always figure out whether the stock has run too much, whether it's run out of juice, or whether it's just getting ready. So let's take a closer look with Doug Merritt. He's the president and CEO of Splunk. Find out more about how his company's doing where it's headed. Mr. Merritt, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you, Jim. Good to see you. Yes, to be here. A petabyte of data is a terrible <laughs> thing to waste. I love your guys' sense of humor, but you're also pretty driven because going from $1 billion to where you want to go $2 billion, 
Tell me, tell people how hard that is, because I need you to tell them because I, they won't believe me if I say it. It's, it's really hard. McKinsey's okay. got a study out there they did a couple of years ago, and it keeps getting refreshed. There are less than 100 companies that are independent companies that have gone to the $1 billion mark. It drops off to below 60 to two, at $2 billion and below 20 to $4 billion. So it is that scale thing is really hard to master. Now, to do that kind of scale, you have to have a plethora and breadth of clients. I'm seeing companies, auto companies. I'm seeing companies, uh, Cisco. I'm seeing a Home Depot. Uh, these are all just reps. Coca-Cola. So what are you doing that everybody seems to like so much? Yeah, you know, big data is growing. It just right. keeps growing. And data is what powers businesses these days. In this machine data area where Splunk is the indisputed leader, we actually, that, that segment's growing 50 times faster than traditional business data. That's part of what is getting organizations on the, on the bus to really focus on gaining value from that data. Daimler is a great example. They selected us recently as the nerve center. It's one of those great that terms that we use. for real. Uh, for security analytics. And they're doing everything uh, on that security analytics platform from uh, securing their manufacturing lines all the way through to vehicle systems. No, but you need to explain. We've had a lot of companies that say that they're mining data, and there are a lot of good mining data companies. You have competitors. Why does Splunk stand out from a lot of the other companies you watch the show that I've had on that also say, hey, we mine data? Yeah, you know, it's, I meet with hundreds of customers every single year, and they're all wrestling with that, that challenge of big data is growing like crazy and how ultimately do will get insights. But that starts in the very beginning on what data do we even look for? How do I find big data? What are sources of big data? Then how do I correlate these colliding streams that are hard to make sense from so I can get those insights and take action? Splunk just distinguishes itself on a couple of differentiated okay. axes. The first, going back to petabyte is a terrible no. thing to waste, is scale. Right. Our bigger right. customers are ingesting petabytes of data per day, petabytes per day. It takes 2 million active users on the Internet to drive a petabyte of data. So it's a massive scale. But it's not just that ingest piece. It's how do I get real-time information? The whole power of machine data is I've got to get quick response time so I can sense and respond. Then you combine that with, but I need insights. I need ease of use. Right. And we talked last time, Splunk allows the same data set to be interrogated by different users and get totally different answers. So the data that you're bringing in to, to secure your business, also it can be a data to ensure IT resiliency, which right. largely will be the same data set to ensure customer insight. Um, and then we continue to double down on AI, and we can talk about that, that as well. But well. One of the things I think, you know, people decided that the Death Star of Amazon, I'm looking, we work with Amazon Web Services, everybody does, uh, was going to wipe out all of retail. And then people started saying, you know what, retail is doing better than I thought. And then what I started realizing myself is, the retailers, like Home Depot, have hired Splunk to be every bit as good as Amazon. Uh, and that what's changed is your company helping the retailers. Yeah, that's that. going back to that many, the single data with many uses. Right. Customers, whether you're ordering a pizza by your phone, whether you're on Amazon or yeah, Walmart. Dom or Domino's or is a ordering. customer. And you know how much we like Domino's. Whether you're hailing an Uber or a Lyft. Right. Every one of those interactions leaves customer breadcrumbs around machine data that if you can pay attention to them can give you great insight. They can secure the industry. They can make sure the systems stay up because, right. you know, God forbid your IT systems right. go down. But they also can give you great insight to customer behavior and trends if you want to pay attention to the data. Well, this is an example. We've had Carnival Cruise. And they're remarkable. They speak at CES, which is really fantastic. But they interpret data with you. They do. They, uh, Carnival recently became a customer in the IT systems intelligence right. arena. They're using AI with 
ITSI, this product that we, that we push out, to allow them to get predictive understanding on any types of systems failures. Yeah, if you think about a cruise ship, it's basically just a big floating city. Right. And right. whether you're a city or whether you're a big organization right. or a state municipality, you have got the same security, IT resiliency, and customer insight type needs. And Carnival is using AI, ITSI, and Splunk to make sure their customers get that great customer experience that they're known for. And you're absolutely right. It's Carnival. Carnival Cruise is the old name. Now, I want to ask you something because you're a straight shooter and you are also imaginative. Blockchain fascinates you. We see people trading blockchain. They don't know blockhead from from <laughs> a, you know, pulling chain in, in Memphis with uh, you, you know with Tina Turner. Will you please give us what blockchain can mean? Uh, you know, we continue to investigate blockchain at, at Splunk. One of the powers of Splunk, if we think about our cloud offering, yeah. data lives everywhere, and Splunk's got to live on the cloud, on prem, in a highly on distributed right. on premises in a highly distributed fashion. Blockchain is really just this really interesting. New iteration, it's been around for many variations for a long time on massively distributed systems that can operate in a trustless, non-centralized type mechanism. Well, they can, they, that means you can disseminate a lot of the functions of banks. But, yeah, there, there's all kinds of both threats and opportunities right, for threats all and organizations okay, out yeah. there. Uh, we've been looking at blockchain around how can we incorporate into the Splunk offering, but also how can you turn Splunk data collection uh, against blockchain type of solution sets so we can help with some of the problems that they're experiencing on scale and resiliency and, and overall integrity of those systems. Well, every time I see you, the company grows bigger, and I don't think people realize how hard that really is to happen. Most plateaued by now, not yours. Doug Murray, President CEO of Splunk. Come on, I still love that shirt. we got to see it. <laughs> the only shirt that I ever brought home from work that my wife says, why don't you bring more home like this? <laughs> Good to see you. Thank Doug. you, Jim. Thank you, buddy. Thank you Thank for having you. me. All right, it's earnings season. It's crazy. What can I say? This ASML number actually did play a major role. That's a big semi-capital equipment company. Look at the semiconductors. That was all because of one company's earnings number. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you. Ready your man money. I'm Jim Craver. See you tomorrow. I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange, which is now a podcast. Subscribe today. It's your one-stop shop for the day's top business stories. Plus, listen in for lots of original reporting, in-depth conversation, and some of the best of CNBC's award-winning investigative work. Subscribe to The Exchange for free, and you can always catch The Exchange live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then.